the Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen, do, repeat for life. Hello, friends. I'm David Pasqualone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Remarkable People Podcast. Today, this episode is going to get you on the road. Yeah, we have Jeff Morrill. He owns Subaru dealerships, and he talks about the Lord's favor and wisdom, how he was just moving forward, just trying to do the right things in life. And it just happened. It just worked out for him. Now, that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of hard work. That doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of determination and grit. And that doesn't mean there wasn't self-growth. But he's very transparent about how him and his brother got together, found a business they could afford, bought it, and then learned to grow the brand and love it. So I always hear Gao Kawasaki say, it's better to be lucky than smart. Well, our guest today, Jeff Morrill, is both. So it's a blessing. Enjoy the episode. And like our slogan says, don't just listen to this great information, but do it, repeat it so you can have a great life. Before we get into this remarkable episode, I just want to thank our sponsors today. Pam Heinold with Better Homes and Gardens Real Estate, Pensacola, Florida. If you're looking to sell your home in this market, it is hot. Houses are going in literally one day put it up, bidding wars, sold in a day. So this is a hot market with a shortage of inventory. If you're in Pensacola and maybe you have an extra home, a rental home, or you're just like, hey, I'm ready to move out myself, call Pam Heinold, P-A-M-H-E-I-N-O-L-D.com. And then from there, tell her Dave sent you. She'll take great care of you. And if you're looking to get into this aggressive market, but beautiful place to live, talk to Pam. She'll be able to hook you up, find you the right place, and be the one that gets that bid in fast and wins. So thank you, Pam Honnold, for your support. And to our listeners, please support those who support us. Now at this time, Jeff, the show's yours, brother. Enjoy. Hey, Jeff, how are you today, brother? Great. And I'm real excited to be with you today, David. I'm excited to have you and so are our listeners. I just told them all about you in the intro. So man, let's dig in. The format of the Remarkable People podcast is like, you know, you're going to tell your story. You can go back all the way to birth and your formative years, how you developed and how you got to this point. And then we'll transition into not only you helping us and growing, but then where are you today and where are you going? So us as listeners from all over the world can help you get there. So that's it, man. Let's share your story. Start wherever you see fit, my friend. Okay, great. Well, I'm going to take Joyce Carol Oates. She's a novelist. I'm going to take her cue to begin a novel the way she writes it by writing the last line. So she works backwards from the end. And hopefully this isn't the end of my life, but it's certainly the end of my experience to this point. So let's start where I'm sitting now in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I'm here after fleeing my businesses, actually. We built uh, several businesses in Boston. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But over about the mid-20-teens, mid I'm going to say 2013, 2014, I, I had burned out really badly because I wasn't doing the things I needed to do to, to keep the sword, sharp, excuse me, the sword sharpened. And, and burnout can hit you pretty hard and suddenly, and, and it did in my case. And I realized that I was going to have to shift gears. So fortunately, I had prepared for the eventuality that I wouldn't want to work really hard six and dev six and seven days a week forever. So over the years, I, I developed a team of, of managers that could run the businesses with, with me checking in on them, but not actually, you know, being there every day. I like to think of my role now as a coach rather than the quarterback getting sacked on the field. And I'm having a lot more fun as a coach too. So let's go back a little bit in time. My wife and I moved up to Boston from our native Virginia in 1998 with my brother, who was my co-founder and business partner, 
to buy a bankrupt Subaru dealership. That was our first business. And we don't come from a business background or, or any wealth, but but we could afford that one because it wasn't uh, fetching a very high price and the, the owners needed to to sell it just so that the obligations of the lease that they had signed wouldn't just ruin them. So now if you don't me ask jump him, in. Was that outside of Lexington, Arlington, Mass by any chance? No, it's uh, just south of Boston. For those of your listeners who know that Boston metro area in Hanover, which is on Route 3, the way to the to the Cape. Yes. Okay. I'm from Milford, Mass originally. And I remember there's a dealership right near Arlington when I go to visit my uncle. And I was like, that would be crazy if it was the same one. But you were the dealership going to the Cape. So I didn't mean to yeah. interrupt you. I just thought that was uh, crazy. No trouble. Would have been a funny coincidence. And I, I know the owner at that store. He's a gentleman. And you know, we get along with some of our competition better than others, but that's uh, that store is called City Side, by the way. Ours is Planet Subaru, is right, the well, name of our, our dealership. We got a so, lot of listeners out there, so if you still have a good relationship or you own it, let us know by the end, and we'll send some listeners there to get a new car. Sure enough. So anyway, that was the first of several businesses that we would end up buying. They generate a, a little over $100 million in annual revenue, sales revenue now, but we didn't start out that big, of course. And so anyway, my wife my wife is ready to move back in the mid-20-teens, and I was too, so we did it. Now, here's the the part that really changed my life, though. I had dreamed of, of riding my mountain bike, getting out from under those fluorescent lights for many years, because I was willing to work hard, but I didn't want to do it forever. And I finally had that wish fulfilled when we moved back to Virginia and we live in the mountains. And I was out on a ride December 13th of 2018 on some pretty icy conditions. And I was involved in a very violent, violent accident. I was alone, which probably wasn't the best idea, but at that time I still thought I was, I was bulletproof and ended up uh, breaking my femur in five places. It was actually separated entirely from my leg and hanging on by skin and muscle. And, and in those moments before help would arrive quite a bit later, I, I didn't know whether I would escape with my life that day. And there's something about that, that near-death experience in middle age to help you re, re, excuse me, reprioritize the things that are important to you. And I'd always been interested in, in service, service to others and, and taking care of my responsibilities, really honoring those to our team members at the dealership and the community and, and of course, our customers. But it was that that process of rehabilitation, learning to walk again during that process. I was very humbled, and I thought about what was left in my life and how I wanted to spend it. I was incapacitated for several months on a couch with my wife needing to take care of my every need, and that was my my window of opportunity to write the book that I'm discussing today with you called Profit Wise, How to Make More Money in Business by Doing the Right Thing. And that's, that's my secret sauce. There are a lot of, a lot of lessons in there, hard-won knowledge and techniques that, that are discussed in that book and also correspond to, to documents and process sheets on the corresponding website with it that I probably wouldn't have been willing to share earlier in my career. But I've gotten to that point where I realized that these things when implemented properly can have a really pro-social effect. And, and what I mean by that is that they are a process that we develop the hard way in systems and systems and ways of thinking about operating a business that, that really serve the community in terms of including people traditionally excluded from our industries, bringing those people in and giving them benefits of good jobs and, and the good income in the industries that we serve. And we figured, figured out some ways to give back to the community so that we're strengthening that at the same time that we're earning a good living in generating the cash flow we need to, to pursue the values we have to make sure we take care of the people that depend on us. That's awesome. Now, what made the decision? Were you in the auto industry before you moved to Boston? Was your family industry? Or is this just, this sounds fun. Let's do it. What, what brought you to that point in life? My brother and I always enjoyed cars and, you know, we, we subscribe to the, the magazines that are now online, but back in the eighties, when we were really excited about cars as younger, younger people, we had to subscribe to actual print magazines, you know, car and driver and road and track. So we always shared that passion. My brother really wanted to be in the car business and ended up 
uh, seeking a job at Ford Motor Company when he when he graduated from college. And I was thinking more along the lines of politics because I always was more interested in public service and thought that government was was a good way when when it was making good decisions to to help people you know improve their lives, which was just an important value of mine. But when I graduated from college, it was in the middle of a recession. It was 1994, and I couldn't find a job, <laughs> so I, I went to a, a politician that I had had volunteered for in college. His name was Don Beyer. And he just by coincidence owned a Volvo dealership in Northern Virginia. So by accident, I ended up in the service department of a car dealership, greeting customers and, and learning that business from the ground up, even though I'd never intended to do it. And because my brother was already in the business, probably the two of us had had the misunderstanding that the other brother knew more about the business than we thought. And that gave us the overconfidence to jump in and, and give it a shot. So the uh, first first few years were a little rough as we as we figured it out, but you can overcome a lot of adversity with enough passion and 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 I'd I'd like to think good character on our part too that that people recognize we were trying to do the right thing. So our customers saw that and wanted to make sure we succeeded and and the people that we interviewed and would ultimately take take positions with us, I think they appreciated our approach too. One of the things that we opened the dealership with is a commitment to providing an experience that was different than the typical dealership. So we've always been focused on that, what we call the undealership approach, which is, you know, giving people straight answers, not playing any of the games that have uh, sullied the reputation of the car business. And, and I think there were a lot of people cheering us on and wanted to be a part of that. And over the years, they've, they've helped us become become a much larger or larger business. And of course, we couldn't do it out without their confidence and support. Now, what made you and your brother choose Subaru? Was it just an open franchise or do you really believe in that brand? I'd love to tell you that we had owned them growing up or something and they had gotten us out of hairy situations. I've since become an enormous fan of both the product and the company. And I've got a garage full of Subarus obviously now, but but back at the time, you know, with the very limited resources that we had, we had to to buy the the business we could afford. And back then, Subaru was not very not a big seller, not a very well established brand in the United States. It is now the third best selling brand in in the six New England states, of course, where 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 our market is, and uh, it's really become you know, comparable to Honda, Toyota in terms of name recognition and, and the quality of the vehicles and the competitiveness of the features and all that. So, so we got uh, a tailwind, you know, buying a business that was for representing a brand that was not particularly well-known or successful. And over the course of our time owning it, you know, it became much more so. Yeah, I remember growing up in Boston as well. And during the early 90s, one of my good friends, who's actually my Sunday school teacher, Barry Conowitz, him and his wife did research, 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 and they bought a Subaru Outback. And I never even heard of it. And I'm like, this is supposed to be a good car. And man, that thing was bulletproof. It was a great vehicle. He loved it. And he's been a lifelong Subaru customer. And all my friends who bought Subarus, they have the same story. It's like once you get in, I guess the quality is just off the chart and they just keep buying it. So you, you, God gave you fortune, right? Uh, wisdom and favor there. Yeah, to be sure. And I, I like to point that out. I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to do it, that, that there's, I think, the conventional wisdom about financially successful people in the United States or even worldwide is that somehow it was their own good decisions and hard work that delivered all the success. And, and I would take some credit you know, we, we started with, with what I think were good values and boy, did we work hard, but luck was at least as big a factor, maybe even bigger a factor. Because I think about if we had ended up with a Mitsubishi dealership at that time or a Nissan dealership or a brand like that, that didn't enjoy the growth, that it would have very much delayed our ability to invest in the other businesses and grow our company. And the funny thing about growing a business, and, and you're probably familiar with this, is that when you start out, your cash flow just gets eaten up by all the expenses you have just trying to grow to 
to build your business for the next day, the next weeks, the next months. So even a business, you know, take, you know, in those early years, let's say that the business was making a million dollars a year and you pay 40 over 40% of that in taxes. So with the 600 left, we had to pay ourselves and, you know, not, not a lot. And, and that would leave us a few hundred thousand to pay down the debt and, and leave a rainy day fund and invest in the things that we wanted to invest in. So it was many years before we could could really commit to expanding the business because we were just trying to to reinforce our very tenuous toehold in, in business at all, you know, because we were so leveraged. Yeah, and, and expound on that a little, Jeff, because that's a misconception that the masses have. They think, oh, you own a business, you're set. They don't see the years of building that business and sacrificing. They just see the success today. So for those listening who are thinking about getting into business, or maybe they are in business right now, what are some steps that you said, man, I wish somebody told me back then when I know today to get that thing, to get that started and moving profitably right away? Well, let me just mention, there were a few chapters that the publisher couldn't fit into the book. And so we decided that we'd include them on my website, jeffmoral.com. And, and those chapters, there are three of them, they, they all deal with, with starting a business. So even if someone can't afford the book, and, and I certainly remember a time in my life where I couldn't afford to buy all the books that I wanted to buy, then, then people can, can take advantage of those chapters and a lot of the other resources at the website. And in those chapters, I describe the difficulty of, of getting going and some of those misconceptions about what it's like to be an entrepreneur. And, and I wouldn't trade it. It worked out really well for me. It's something I needed to do because the, my particular personality, I, I'm very happy to be a servant leader. I'm very happy to support the people on our team. But, but at the end of the day, for me to be really happy, I need to be able to make the final decision. <laughs> and when I was working for someone else, it was, it was just difficult for me to accept decisions, you know, being required to execute on things that I just didn't really believe in. So it was really necessary for me. But anyway, to make a long story short, I think the, the key for entrepreneurs is to have realistic expectations about what they're getting themselves into. And the most successful people I know are actually, when I say financially, they fall into two categories. There are a handful I've read about. And when I say a handful, I mean just a handful of those people like the Instagram founders who, who start a company and you know within three years sell it for a billion dollars. And you can probably count the number of people in the world out of the 8 billion people in the world who have managed to, to bottle lightning like that. I mean, maybe it's a hundred people or something. So it's just forget about that. I mean, it's theoretically possible, but you yeah, know, it's like yeah. winning the, it's like winning the Powerball. So the rest of us are trying to make slow bucks. And I think the mistake would be to think that you're going to start Instagram because it's, while well, it's again, theoretically possible, it's very unlikely. I think most businesses and ours is no exception you know, you jump in, maybe you do it gently as a, as a side hustle kind of thing, or in the case, like my brother and I did, you just go in with both feet, you know, and cross your fingers and, and hope you, you swim to, to the top of the, the water before you drown. And it, it worked out for us, but the key is just understanding that it takes a long time and, and not feeling bad if it doesn't happen right away. We had the experience, I call it the lonely middle, and I describe it in the book, where right after the the thrill of the startup is gone, you know, this is two or three years in, and you're still working six days a week, seven days a week, and and you can have really bad days where you question whether you should even be in it. And I don't subscribe to that advice that you should never give up. I think there there are times when that applies. And for us, it was certainly the case. I'm glad we didn't give up. But there are times when you probably should. And, and we kept going because we knew we could see that we were building some momentum, even though it didn't feel like it. We were cash flow positive. We were profitable. We saw that our marketing approach, that people responded to it. We saw that customers appreciated that alternative to the typical dealership experience. Like that there were there was the aroma of success, even though we weren't experiencing it very intensely. 
and that that carried us through. But I think it's important to understand that that to make the decision to jump into a business, there are a lot of benefits and the potential rewards can be can be very large. But almost guaranteed, you're going to have some really tough days and you're going to put in a lot of long hours. And there will be many times where you wonder whether you even made the right decision. Yes. And I think statistically, industry, it varies, but consistently, all the numbers I've seen for the average overnight success, you're looking at seven to nine years. So when people say, oh, that person's an overnight success, they really busted their you know, behinds for seven to nine years. So they could have that privilege. Sure enough, and and I think there's a compounding effect too. That that's the, that was about the time frame for us. It was about ten years before we were really well established. Before we weren't, you know, constantly dealing with turnover. You know, to get that really solid core of your of your management team established, and and you know, just the working through all your process issues and getting your name out into the community so that you didn't have to spend as much advertising, you know, the repeat and referral business was sustaining you instead of having to go out and, you know, entice people driving by on the street to, to walk in the door, or drive in, drive into your parking lot. So, so that was about the time frame. And in the compounding effect that I'm describing, it was really the later years that, that we've, we've built up most of our net worth. Because like I said, early on, you know, after you pay the, the taxes on your, on your revenue, excuse me, on your net profit, there's just not a lot left there after you pay off your debt. And, and we got in a business, there was just a lot of debt. And I think a lot of businesses are like that. If you're in a landscaping business, you have trucks, you have, you have mowers. If you're in a, a, you know, a site contracting construction business, you, have the, you, know, you can spend $300,000 on a piece of equipment. It just takes a long time to pay that off. And of course, once it is, it's a revenue machine. But it might take you ten years to pay it off, and then and and to buy additional businesses. Obviously, you have to be really well established. So, so that's that's I think one of those things that that isn't as well as widely discussed as probably should be when people think about starting businesses. And building a team, you've mentioned that several times, and I mean that's the core, that's the key, your foundation, you know, your beliefs, your mission, your vision. But then you need somebody to help run it with you because no man's an island. No person can do it on their own. Talk about building a team. What did you see that's worked and hasn't worked? I made just about every mistake you could make in this respect. And over the course of the over 20 years that we've had our own businesses, I've, I've been in a position to hire several hundred people. And up until recently, since I've, I've moved away from the, the actual day-to-day operations of the business, I was present for, for every person that, was join us, that would join us. I would interview those people. In the very beginning, I was the only person who would, who would interview them. So we have a lot of, we, we developed a hiring system by trial and error. I'm not sure it's the, the recommended way to develop a hiring system, but it certainly helped us do it from the ground up. And, and I described it in the book. One of the, the most important things, it starts all the way back before you run the ad, the recruiting ad, is to have some understanding of who you are as a company and the kind of values you're looking for in a person. So I'll give you an example. We, we like to have people that are, that are environmentally responsible and, and to have people that that means something to, because as a dealership, we, we try to operate the facility in a very green way. I won't go into a lot of detail about how we do it, but, but that's one example. Another example is we like people that, that are that are really concerned about serving other people and serving their communities. So we're not looking for people who just want to come in and make a lot of money. And that's the only thing that's important to them. We want, we want whole people that want to serve the world. So we talk about those values in our recruiting ads because we figured out that those are the kind of people we want and those people succeed with us and appreciate the kind of people we are. And then once you start interviewing applicants, we have, we've given some thought to the kind of people and the skills that we need in, in those people. And to help surface those qualities, we have prearranged interview templates. And, and some of these are on our, our website if people want to see what I mean. So we don't spend our interview time talking about hobbies or where people went to school. Maybe we'll spend a little time on their resume. But 
But we know the questions to ask that are likely to surface these qualities with, with good signal value, the questions that, that will point you in the direction of the qualities that the people will deliver to your, to your business once they join you. So I'll give you an example. We, we've found that conscientiousness is a very important quality for success in our company. And, and so we have questions that, that try to address that and, and see if that person you know, has exhibited those traits in the past and, and is capable of, of continuing to remain committed to those for us. Beautiful. And when you interview people, like you said, you kind of just develop, there's always fundamental good ideas and processes to fall that are universal, but in your industry and in your business with your environment, you know, you found those certain questions and certain characteristics that you were looking for. How long would you say it took to kind of develop that rhythm? I mean, it takes time, but for you and your business, how long should our listeners be expecting? You know, might be faster, might be slower, but what did it take you? And when you say, just to clarify on the question, you mean to develop their own hiring system to, to deliver the kind of results I'm talking about? Yeah. Like how long from the day you open and start hiring people to when you're like, yeah, we got this down to a system. We feel good. We're going to get a good hire each time. Well, not to push the book too hard, but but I wish I had I had read a book that had summarized the process because I think in in my book has it has our process because it would have saved me a lot of the trial and error on our part. I think if you read the book or or similar good books about how to hire well, you can really accelerate the process. I mean, there is some experience, obviously, to hiring in terms of if you're going to be hiring salespeople and you've never hired salespeople before, you know, you need a team of people that is accustomed to, to identifying those traits. And sometimes they're subtle, you know, sometimes it'll be, be just a, a simple thing that someone says that, that reminds you of someone that you hired before that, that allows you to, to dive into that, that, particular person's personality traits a little deeper than you might have to discover something that's a red flag or maybe something that really appeals to you, even though, even though they don't have some of the other qualities that you think they might have and, and, and make you be willing to, to roll the dice on them. So I don't think it, as long as you, you're, you're using a system and paying attention, and I recommend ours, then very quickly, I mean, within, within a handful of hires, you're going to get the hang of how this works. And, but I'll tell you, it, it's, not, it's not something you can phone in. In our case, we have three interviews. So I'll give you an example. The first interview is with, with one manager, and that manager assesses whether, whether the person really is, is in the range of someone we could hire before, you know, so that we don't spend a lot of resources interviewing every person that applies. The second interview will have three or four managers participating in that, asking a different set of questions. And now, you know, if they get past that second interview, we're pretty serious about, about their ability to, to perform well after joining us. But that's even not enough. We have a, a six or a seven hour shadow day interview. And the reason we call it a shadow day is because it just describes, it's not really an interview in the sense that people are sitting around a desk. We invite them into the department that they're going to be working in, and they get to meet everybody on the team, and they get to observe what that team is doing. So let's use an example at one of our retail businesses at the, at the Subaru dealership. We'll have a prospective salesperson candidate come in on a busy Saturday and just linger in the showroom, listening into the conversations that our salespeople are having with the customers getting a feel for the kinds of questions that, that customers ask. Maybe they observe a grumpy customer who, who hasn't heard about our different way of, of doing business and wants to, to try to push the salesperson around and they see how we handle that. They see that it's not all, all roses, you know, that sometimes they have to deal with difficult people. And it gives our team a, a chance to to, we get a lot of eyes on that candidate because we have a lot of, you know, a lot of team members that they get a chance to talk to the person. And that's a gift I think we give to our team too. It's not just a benefit to the, to the dealership in terms of improving the quality of the applicants that we hire, but it's a very, very powerful signal 
to the people who are actually doing the job working in our, our businesses every day that we care a lot about their opinion. And we've had situations where, where a single frontline person has said, you know what, I, I had this brief conversation, casual conversation during lunch with, with the candidate and, and he said this thing and we, we can't have that, you know, and, and we've disqualified people based on, on a single person on our team, a frontline person having a good reason to, to not want that person on the team. So those are some, some of the key steps involved and it's really not particularly complicated. It just, you have to follow the system and do the work. Nice. So you and your brother, decide to buy the dealership you work hard for years and you're busy working 60 70 hours i'm sure in an automobile dealership and then you're working six seven days a week family you mentioned your wife how do you even find time and how did you balance not just growing a business but starting a family and and making that work yeah, we made a lot of mistakes there, I guess, but we didn't have kids. So that simplified it a little bit for me, although my brother and he adopted two boys. So he had, he had some kids that he had to worry about. But I think my wife and I, the way we worked it out is that we looked at life as seasons and we knew there would be a time that we would need to plant. And she was willing to accept that, that she was going to need to support me during that time and that I would not be as available to support her professionally because I was just going to be so busy and even personally for a time, not forever. And that's the arrangement we made. We actually, when we moved up to Boston to buy the business, I, we had an agreement that, that we would move back in nine years if she wanted to move back. It was a deal. And if she had said at nine years, hey, you had your nine years, it's time to go back. I would have said, okay, you know, I'm going to honor that commitment. And it turns out that, that she lasted, uh, we made it almost 20, you know, before she, she pushed that button. And, and by the time she pushed that button, I, I was pushing as hard as she was. So, so there was no issue at all with that. But I think if, if entrepreneurs go into business understanding that there will be a period of time where they won't be the best dad or mom or the best husband or wife, and that that's okay for a period of time, but there's a negotiated agreement in advance that that's not a permanent condition. I think that can be a really important way to get through it. And that's how we did it. And, and I think I see people making that mistake. You know, the, the entrepreneurs who continue to work really long hours and, and really pile up an unfair amount of responsibilities on the spouse in particular, particular, and also, you know, don't devote the appropriate amount of attention to their kids because they, they can't find the way to cut back. They're either addicted to, to the hours or they're not willing to make the hard choices to delegate or they're control freaks. And there are a million reasons why people don't do it. Most of them aren't very good. But I see it very commonly, and it's a common mistake for, for entrepreneurs to make. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I mean, you guys went in it honest. You had the talk ahead of time. You didn't mm -hmm. assume anything. And then, like you said, you kept your, you would have kept your commitment, but you guys went a little bit further because you were in agreement and you were both equally yoked. So, and recognizing their season. So we have listeners from all over the world, and everybody has a different you know, worldview and background. But I think it is universal that if we recognize there's seasons in our lives, high seasons, low seasons, everything in between, it's easier to accept life because we all have ups and downs. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the seasons, I think that metaphor can be applied too, just in terms of, of maybe in a very literal way. You know, you think about how you, you're very busy planting seeds in the spring with no harvest at all. And that was certainly the case for my wife and me. I mean, we were living on, I mean, <laughs> literally cutting coupons and there, this was not, you know, some kind of lifestyle of the rich and famous for years. I mean, we were, we were really, really scraping by and, and she understood though, that there would be a time that if we made good decisions and, and with a with some good fortune and blessings going our way, that there would come a time when we could harvest those seeds. And, and it really is, I have a deep sense of pride that that, that 
has occurred, you know, that, that I was able to keep that promise. And now, now we have the freedom to do all sorts of good things. You know, we have the, the time to do it. You know, we can, we can make up, we can take trips and make up for some of that time that we didn't spend together earlier. And we also have many more resources to, to advance the causes that are important to us. Yeah. And then I want to ask you two more questions about when you were raising, raising the business, growing the business, what was one of your darkest seasons and how did you get through it? Like you talked about quitting earlier, how to know when to quit and when not to quit share with our audience to encourage them. Cause they're probably in a low season. A lot of them, what was one of your low seasons? How did you hang on and how did you get through it? We were involved without going into a lot of the details, a, a multi-year litigation, which was very expensive and not, not only was the money costly, I think the, the personal toll was even more because it, you know, really, really um, difficult lawsuits take a lot out of you. You know, there, there are depositions involved where, where the lawyers are asking you questions and it, it, in, in a hostile way, actually, these are not, these are not friendly occasions. And in the whole time, you're wondering how it's going to end. And it was, it was, wow, that was a, <laughs> a difficult period. I'm less interested in describing it any more than that because I'm, you know, just the, the recollection of it's difficult and more interested in talking, talking about that part of your question. How do you get through it? Yeah. And, and I didn't, I, I don't want you to go any deeper than no, you. No, it, no, emotional. I get it. it can, it can connect back. So how did you get through that and hang on? No, this isn't the time to quit. It's just time to persevere. Yeah. I think the, the skill that I developed by the time this occurred was just understanding that, the difficulties that you're experiencing now won't last forever. So understanding your own response to adversity and, and realizing that, that you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't get stuck in it. You know, that's in the Psalms, they, they talk about you, you make it out. You just don't, you don't feel like that at the time, but, but that's coming for you if you can just put one foot in front of the other. So I tend to shorten my focus during that time. I was less future oriented. I would just, what do I have to do to, you know, we'd go do depositions all day or we'd have to appear in court. And I was like, I don't have to, I don't have to solve the problems tomorrow or, or really do anything other than just get through this day and try to try to honor the responsibilities I have to the people depending on this business to to earn their livings and, and put their children through college, put food on the table. How do I take care of them? And and I think that the significance of the responsibility I had to other people strengthened me because I knew that that it wasn't just about me. I couldn't quit because there were too many other people that would suffer. And that's, that's a big motivator for me in my life. I mean, my, my prime directive, if you will, to use the, the Star Trek term, my, my central animating principle in my life is to make sure I, I live up to the trust and that, that other people have put in me. And, and that's a very powerful motivator because you, if, if you really believe that, and in my case, I do, that I, I don't want to cause problems for other people. And, particularly when it comes to, to them losing their income. Yeah. And that's, again, thank you for that solid, transparent honesty and advice. Cause I think you're spot on there, but to bring you back to a better place now, emotionally, what was one of the high seasons? Cause sometimes business people, people don't realize that businesses go out of business more for being too busy and losing quality than they do for not having business and kind of like addiction people think well like you know if you're a drug addict i do drugs when i'm low no sometimes you do drugs when you're on a high so you had a low season what's a real high season that you almost got yourself in trouble by being too high and then how did you balance yourself back out yeah one of the dangers i think of making decisions under under duress when you're feeling really low or or that 
when you're experiencing a manic high is that you're not evaluating risk properly. You know, when you're low, all you see is risk. When you're high, you don't see the the dangers that are to you. I I can't say you might have figured it out by now listening to me for these last minutes. I don't experience really high highs and really low lows. I mean, my personality, I'm just really mellow and calm. I mean, there's an intensity about me, of course, because I, I work very hard and I'm very driven and motivated, but but I don't I don't express that and I don't really feel it that way. I mean, I'll, I'll get down and, and there are days that are that are more fun than others, but I can't say that the business mistakes that I've made were made as a result of overconfidence or or feeling a particular high. I think, you know, my business partner, my brother, he he tends to experience even lower lows, but much higher highs. And I guess the the trick has been that that we've been able to complement each other. You know, there are times where he's been much more excited about a business deal. And I'm like, no, I mean, yeah, so we're doing well this year, but you know, I've lived through two recessions, really bad recessions you know, I don't want to take on the debt, you know, (laughs) or whatever. So we've ended up passing on things and vice versa. He's, he's, he's pushed me to do things, you know, to, to take on, take on projects and new businesses that have ended up doing really well that I just wasn't that excited about, but he was. So, so there really is something, you know, partners, partnerships have a lot of potential risks, but but that's one of the, the benefits of it is that if you have someone that's matched, matched well to your personality in terms of complementing you and balancing off the things that you aren't as good at or whatever, I think that can be really helpful. Awesome, man. So we went through kind of like the motivation for why you bought the dealership, starting out, you and your brother growing it. Now, praise the Lord, you're in Boston 20 years. You decide to move back home. Did we miss anything in the story that we need to cover? Or do you want to bring us from that point forward where you're at? Maybe I, I'd, I'd like to revisit just a little bit of the, the burnout. And I guess I think had I, had I read the right book, had I talked to the right person, I could have seen that coming and I could have avoided it and, and because I still haven't quite recovered from that, you know, we moved to to Virginia in March of 2018, so it's about three years now that we've been here, and I've been kind of reckoning with that, you know, what it's like to to put in too much and to try to regenerate those batteries. And I guess what I'd say about burnout, I have a definition for it, is that it's when you get tired of say, uh, sorry. When you get tired of solving the same problems over and over again, like there's some amount of that you can do and then you just run out of gas. And I think I was doing it too long. Like I, I was tired of doing it. And if I could do it over again, I would have promoted people faster to take those responsibilities that I wasn't enjoying. Like I would have, would have promoted a general manager to take over the day-to-day responsibilities of the business instead of assuming those responsibilities myself. But I think I was cheap because I was reluctant. You know, a good general manager of any business is going to cost you quite a bit. And I think I was afraid to give up that, that control. You know, founders love to have their hands in everything. And I was, I was averse to, to handing it off to anybody. And, and I, I think I was probably guilty of just not, not really tracking my own, my own emotional health. You know, I, I just assumed that, that to, to build a business, you just had to be really tough and suffer it out. And, and I think there is a time for that. I mean, I'd warn anybody starting a business, just be prepared to, for it to really hurt for a while, but it shouldn't just be like that forever. You know, that's not the point that, you know, the reason you open a business is to, to expand the service you can do to others and, and increase the freedom and the, the resources you have available to do the things you want in your life, not to make yourself miserable. So I think those would all be things that I would encourage your listeners who are already in business to be thinking about. Excellent advice. So now, where are you today, Jeff, and where are you heading? 
So I'm in a, a curious time in my life that I've, I have, I'm 49. So I'm, I'm too young to retire, but I haven't figured out what it is that really gets me excited next. So the book has been a wonder, wonderful connector. I would say it's a bridge between that life I was living in business. And the book now is my chance to really reflect on the things that I learned. And I've devoted a lot of time to concentrating what I've learned into something that's very usable for people. And I'm very proud of that, but it's a bridge to something else. I'm not going to write another book. You know, I don't, as much as I enjoy being an author, this isn't the thing that's going to sustain me into the next chapter of my life. And, and so where I am now is uh, trying to figure out what the next chapter is. Awesome. Well, is there anything that we can do as listeners? You've just shared with us so much insight and wisdom, anything we can do to help you get clarity or in your next step. Well, one thing I would like, I would like your listeners to do is if, if I've said anything that resonates with them or, or it's stimulated questions or comments, I love hearing from, from readers and from podcast listeners and they can reach me at jeffmoral.com. And I'm always, I res- respond to every email and I'm always interested to, to hear people's perspectives. And I would hope that, that people, like I said before, even if they can't buy the book because of financial circumstances, that they'd avail themselves of the resources at the website that they might take that, that inspiration and, and use the tools that are there to, to do what I'm asking everyone to do in their businesses, which is try to find a way to help, help your team, your community, and your customers win a little bit more than they're winning now. And at the same time, that will help them with their bottom lines too. Amen. Now, we have this as a podcast. It's a video cast. And then we also do a transcription. But for our listeners who want to get a hold of you, Jeff, go ahead and spell your name because you got a super cool last name. But what's the best way for them to contact you? And let's spell it out so they make sure they get it right if they're just listening. Sure. Thank you. So it's www.jeff, J-E-F-F, moral, M-O-R-R-I-L-L.com. And if they forget that, if you Google Profit Wise book, it'll pull up the same website. Awesome. And like always to our listeners, we're going to have all this information in the show notes. You can just click and go, but definitely check out Jeff's book and what he's doing. And Jeff, is there anything else, any final thoughts, words of encouragement, any epiphanies that you have before we wrap up this episode? Yes. One last thing. My father, who's a school teacher, retired now, used to talk with us as kids about making sure there was love in the model. And if you knew my dad, you'd understand it's kind of a curious term, but he had a lot of, a lot of nice ways of phrasing things. And what he meant by that is that he thought human institutions should exist for the benefit of improving conditions for, for people in the world, because otherwise, what's the point? And, and he saw schools like that in his particular context. He, he wanted to make sure that, that the policies, that the curriculum that the school followed, all these things were focused on developing people. And, and that really stuck with me. And I would, I would ask your listeners who own businesses or, or for the people who don't own them now and will be building businesses in the future to, to make sure they're thinking about that as they, as they take care of their business, to make sure there's love in their model, that their, their company values and the procedures and the goals of the company are geared towards towards improving their corner of the world at the same time that they're making their living. That is great advice because at the end of the day, if we're trillionaires and we're surrounded with no one, but no love, but we have a bunch of money, what's it worth? Right. But yeah, it's, it's pretty hollow victory. Yeah. 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 So if we're poor and we're surrounded with people we love and that's what matters, but if we can have both, that's just fantastic, right? Right, right. So, that's, so, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah. So listen, you know, God talks about all the time, having balance, doing love God, love others, but there's nothing wrong with money. It's the love of money. So listen to Jeff, get his book, 
make as much money as you can use it for good don't be selfish and i have a great life jeff it's been a true pleasure having you on the podcast today and again i'll say this again i never want to rush this or cut anything out or miss anything anything else you can think of that you want to discuss before we go no that's good it's been a blessing to be with you today thank you Oh, it's been a blessing. And as our listeners hang out for another couple minutes, Jeff, we got a special offer for you and we will see you one minute. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again. You truly are a remarkable man. And it's been an honor having you here today. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, was that not a remarkable episode? Jeff not only shared with us wisdom And not only does he have a book, but he's about to give you access to free content that'll continue the growth. And then based on that, if you have any questions, reach out to Jeff, check out the show notes. But Jeff, at this time, what do you have for our remarkable audience? If they visit uh, my website, jeffmoral.com slash reader dash tools, or if they're willing to hunt around the website, just just go to jeffmoral.com and they'll find the link. There are bonus chapters on starting a business including crucial questions to ask before launching, how to choose the right business for you, and why you need a business plan and how to get started. I also have diagnostic worksheets for improving your business, the same tools that we use every day in our businesses, the exact checklist templates and other process documents that are described in the book and that we use. So I, I'd invite your, your listeners to, to take a look there, and hopefully there will be tools that they can use in their businesses as soon as today. Awesome. So check out that website. Check out that free content that Jeff's given you. And like our slogan says, don't just listen to great information, but do it, repeat it for a great life. This is David Pasqualone. Have a great day, Jeff. Thank you for being here with us. And for all our listeners, we love you and we'll see you next week. And thanks again, Jeff. Thank you. Bye. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out. The Remarkable People Podcast. Listen. Do. Repeat for life.